Welcome to another episode of our Chefs and Guests podcast series on the Spoon Mob podcast. This week, I'm joined by Chef Wesley Grubbs. He's the CDC Chef de Cuisine over at Chapman's Eat Market in German Village. If you haven't been to Chapman's, make sure to go over there, check it out. Pretty much one of the best new restaurants that we have here in the city and have had for quite a while. Uh, we've had Chef BJ on the podcast. He was like the third or fourth guest that we had. Uh, we've also had Chef Matt Larkin, who's one of the sous chefs over there on the podcast too. So check out both those episodes if you haven't. It's cool to talk to Chef Wesley because you could just get a different perspective. You know, he grew up in Maryland. He spent a lot of time working in Charleston, South Carolina and that area. Uh, went abroad for doing some shipbuilding stuff too as well and eventually found his way you know, BJ brought him up here. I was able to get him up here to Columbus and be a part of the restaurant that he was opening here. And you just get an outside perspective of what he's experienced so far in the city too as well. So having been here for over a decade myself, you kind of get numb to some of the things that we have that, you know, maybe make the city special or things that need to be improved that you just don't notice anymore. You know, one thing that I always notice when I come back from whatever travels is the lack of public transportation, you know, the the no subway system, no light rail that always, you know, no tram, you know, Cincinnati has a tram, but we don't have a tram. And and I know there's issues with Cincinnati's and the funding and everything, but as big as the city is, it's kind of one of those things that always kind of just like sticks in my craw a little bit that we don't have better public transportation here for people. And you can see that eventually as the city keeps growing and even though the metro area is kind of the main growth factor, we're eventually going to need it and we're not going to have it. And it's going to be a, a big day of reckoning whenever somebody decides to try and do that, if they ever do. So otherwise you're going to wind up, you know, something like DC where you just have traffic blockages at like three in the afternoon and stuff like that. That's a topic for another time, but it's cool to get Chef Wesley's perspective on things that he's enjoyed so far being in Columbus and his time, you know, working as a butcher and how that runs in his family and everything too, as well. So check them out. You can follow Chapman's on Instagram at eat Chapman's. Also, Wesley's on there at Wesley Grubbs. You can follow him on Instagram too. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Spoon Mob. Follow, subscribe to the podcast on all major platforms. But without further delay, this is my conversation with Chef Wesley Grubbs of Chapman's Eat Market in Columbus, Ohio. Well, thanks again for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it with the reschedule and everything, like I mentioned. But, you know, kind of start where we usually start with everybody. There's not a whole lot of information on a lot of chefs. Some out there I was able to find on you, but how did you kind of get started in the industry? I always looked up to my cousin, Scott Hoyland, which in my bio is actually wrong. I think it says Scott Williams. Scott Hoyland's my cousin, and uh, he was a chef, and uh, just always looked up to him. He's like 6'4". Stocky, like, you know, kind of looks like a hockey player. And I was a little runt back in the day. So they called us, uh, he was a jelly green giant. I was a little sprout. So, like I said, I just wanted to do and be everything like him. And he was a chef for, for as long as I can remember. And uh, so I used to go in the kitchens and work with him every now and again and just, uh, yeah, just kind of fell in love with it. Yeah. I and mean, my grandmother, she was constantly cooking. And I just remember running into, uh, into her house and heading like straight to the cookie jar because it was always full. And yeah, just always love food. And uh, and then once I got into kitchens and started uh, working on a day-to-day basis, uh, that, that lifestyle just appealed to me. It was fun. People were uh, entertaining and like-minded. Yeah, it just kind of drew me, drew me in even further. So my, my cousin actually encouraged me to do anything else, told me to go to college, like, don't do this for a living. And that just made me want to do it that much more. It's funny that it's the name wrong because it's whatever article, I can't remember which one, but like just doing general research, like there's always like contradictory information. So that's funny. I even wrote that and like my mom like contacted me and was like, hey, 
you know, that's not your cousin's last name. And I was like, Oh shit, you're right. Like, I can't believe I did that. Like I'm sitting here saying, I look up to this guy and then I couldn't remember his last name. I guess it's, you know, so it's so funny. Uh, but yeah, so I, I, I just love kitchens. Yeah. I, I just love the lifestyle. I, you know, it's, it's hard work, but it's also extremely rewarding. You can look at the end of your day and actually see stuff that you accomplished. It's just fun. When you first got started, was it like in high school, your first job in a restaurant? Like most people, I think it kind of wind up being like dishwashing and kind of where they usually get their start. Yeah, I definitely worked my way up. I think my first job was at a place called the Rum Line Inn. I was a busboy. Moved into kitchens after that. and Yeah, I took a prep shift there. And then after that job, uh, I definitely went to a dishwasher position. And that was, I realized that I wanted to learn more because I didn't want to be doing that day in, day out anymore because that stinks. It's a tough job. It's it's honestly, it's one of the toughest in the kitchen. You know, I, I don't know that our, our porters in our restaurant, I give a ton of credit to because they have a job that typically most people don't want to do. Our guys do it with smiles on their face. And, um, but yeah, so I just started moving up from there. Eventually... I went to culinary school for about three months because I knew this is what I wanted to do. I got the basics and realized I hate school. So I, I ended up leaving and then went home and uh, mooched off my parents for you know a little while. And my mom finally looked at me one day and was like, we're going on a vacation. And when I get back, have a job or I will have a job for you. And so I, I went and got a job in a kitchen. So because there's no telling what she was going to make me do. I read that you're, you know, pretty much self-taught. So when you went to culinary school, was it just you kind of knew everything that they were already kind of teaching you, and that's why you didn't kind of stick it out? No, I was definitely one of those very green people who, uh, yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't know much at all. I just knew I didn't want to be in school. I cut class a ton, but I got the basics. You know, I, I had like a front of the house class where you know I learned how to serve from the right and not backhand people and things like that. And then uh, I had a storeroom class. So again, I learned how to stock shelves and first in, first out and all that stuff. So I really, I got my basics and was just, yeah, was just done with school, but still loved cooking. Yeah, it was just straight into restaurants after that. Based on your experience thus far, what would you say to somebody about culinary school? If somebody in your kitchen now comes in and just starts working there, wants to apply, is like, I'm real serious about this. Like, you know, do you think I should go to culinary school? What would you tell them? I would treat it on a case-by-case basis. I would definitely tell them to work in a kitchen at least six months to a year to really figure out if this is what they want and to see what they're able to take in in that year. And then, I mean, if it's somebody who is into learning by books and, and, and things like that, yeah, go to school. If you enjoy school and learning that way, if you're not, then don't do it. And just work in some great places and put your head down and just cook is what I would tell people. So I learned, I mean, obviously I learned everything in kitchen, so I'm better for it. I didn't know how to butcher a whole pig before husk. I became the butcher there and, uh, and now I can, you know, I can virtually do it with my eyes closed. So I, I think you just have to find something that you like about cooking and then focus on it. But I typically don't encourage people to go to, to school. You're going to spend a lifetime trying to pay those bills back. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty expensive. And then depending on which one you go to, you know, if you go to like the CIA, it's way more than something if you do something local or whatnot. And then you're going to go into a low paying job like cooks don't get paid great immediately. You know, like you got to work your way up to that. And yeah, you're going to be struggling. I'm not the first to recommend uh, culinary school. So your mom says, get a job. By the time I come back from vacation, was that Galileo de Roberto where you wound up working or? No, not yet. <laughs> I drove up to Annapolis, Maryland, 
and which is about an hour from my parents' house or so, and uh, and got a job at a place called Ramshead Tavern. And I mean, it's just that. Like they brewed their own beer there. And then, you know, I was making chicken and brie apple sandwiches, you know, like I was on the grill, just grilling off hundreds and hundreds of pieces of chicken, you know, a day and stuff like that. So, uh, but again, it was a great job. I learned and met a lot of cool people. Yeah, I was hooked. I didn't mind the hour commute. It wasn't so bad as nowadays I wouldn't. I mean, I walk to work now. It's a mile away. I love it. So how did you wind up then from going there to Galileo? Like how did all that come about? From there, I went to a place called Harry Brown's, which was still in Annapolis. And I ended up traveling. Well, like one of the cooks that I met at Ramstead got a job over there and was like, hey, come work with us. We're doing some really fun stuff. The chef there, who was the first person, he's the first guy that I actually called chef, Chef Walter Robinson. He came from Galileo and took this job in Annapolis. So, and he just, he like opened our eyes to food and to the possibilities, uh, new techniques. He was super excited about it and his passion just spilled over to, to our kitchen. And we had an awesome crew. We were all trying new things. And I mean, I, we were doing some fun stuff. If I look back on it now, I would probably scoff at it a little bit. But, you know, back then it was cutting edge to us. So, and then so eventually, you know, he just kept talking about his experiences at uh, Galileo's and like he just glorified it. That was like the next step. So, anyone that left that kitchen, we tried to go to Galileo. And that's like we made it at that point. So, or at least so we thought. It seems like it was a really cool, like creative kind of environment too as well. It sounds like it was kind of like everybody wanted to be there for anybody who was serious about the industry. No, it totally was. It was a, that was a fun time. A lot of good memories from that place and, and, and that crew. A couple of us did go on. I wasn't the only one. There were about three of us that ended up at Galileo cooking for a while. So after about, I think like a year or so, you were probably there, right? Like about a year? Yeah. Is that when you head down to Charleston, South Carolina? Yeah. A friend of mine uh, who I cooked with at Harry Brown's, who didn't go with us to Galileo, he was like, hey, I'm going down to Charleston. There's a ton of restaurants down there. The beach is down there. Like, it's it sounded great. And that's where I went to culinary school for the brief time that I was there. And I just, I enjoyed Charleston the three months that I was there. And just, I it had this special place in my heart, even though I wasn't really immersed in it for too long. Yeah. When he said Charleston, I was, I was like, yeah, let's go. I've lived in Maryland my whole life at that point. So I needed something new. Yeah. A month later we were in Charleston. So. And you started working at, was it uh fish? Yeah. There were a couple like uh, odd places here and there that didn't really work out. Just trying to get our bearings of what was going on down there. And then started at a place called fish, which was awesome. Again, met a lot of good friends there uh, that I still talk with today. We were doing fun food. Yeah, it was a good time. We, uh, I definitely enjoyed the experience there. So, was it mostly like seafood focused? It was, yeah, seafood. You know, I mean, it was, you know, obviously back then, it really did seem like everything was like shrimp and grits. You know, every restaurant had their own shrimp and grits uh, recipe and all that. Yeah, it was definitely focused on fish. I got to, I got to learn a little more about butchering fish and uh, and things like that there. So it was a. Uh, it was fun. So when you first moved to like a city like that, and, and like you said, there's a couple of places that you kind of looked into or maybe worked briefly and didn't work out. Like with a lot of jobs outside of the culinary industry, I think people, when they start a new job, there's always like that apprehension. Is this going to be a good fit or not? It definitely seems like in the culinary industry, it's a bit more of like, oh, this isn't going to work. So I'm just, I'm not going to like tough it out or ride it out or anything because this clearly isn't a fit for me or, or the style that I'm looking for. 
or anything like that. Does it take a little while for somebody to kind of get to that point within the culinary industry versus like an office job where you, you know, went to like another insurance company? You're like, oh, I got to be here like a year. Otherwise, it's going to look bad kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think it's a little more excusable when you're younger. I was 24 at the time. So, I mean, I was still young. Yeah, you don't want to see it too often on someone's resume. I don't really put those things on there anymore, obviously. Uh, gaps in, in between restaurants is definitely uh, something that throws up a red flag to me. It's excusable, I think, uh, at a, a much younger age. So if you're still doing that twenty with 20 years of experience, there might be some issues, you know? Like, I'm probably not going to be first to hire you. But again, Charleston was new. It wasn't the culinary scene that it is today. It was still a couple years away from that. There weren't a lot of great, great places there. And it was a lot tougher to get your foot in the door because there were so far and few, but there were a lot of good cooks. So you really had to like fight to get into some places. So after Fish, I think you work at a place called Coast. And then eventually you wind up being a sous chef on Seabrook Island, right? Yeah, at a place called uh, Bohickett Marina. Yeah, that was a fun time. Uh, spent about a year there as well. And then that place just... So they closed down for like the month of January. That During that time, I, I went off and used, I used to do this uh, shipbuilding uh, construction job from time to time, where which is a complete you know separation from cooking. Uh, but it was fun. I got to travel a lot. What are we talking? Are we talking like naval yard? Are we talking fishing boats? Like We did some naval yards. Uh, we started out on um, uh, river boats, casino boats is how the company started out. And then we moved up to Carnival cruise ships. We did a lot of those jobs. It's, it's interior work. Not a lot. Not, not actually building the ships, but the interior design of it. So yeah, it, you know, it was a good trade for me as well to learn plumbing and construction and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, that pretty much just took me away from Bohickett. The pay was better. Again, I was able to travel a lot because uh, we did jobs in the Bahamas. We spent time over in Spain. So it's like, you got to see the world. I mean, I got to go spend a month in uh, Hawaii. Like we were stationed in uh, Pearl Harbor. I woke up every morning curing taps and the raising of the flag over the Arizona. You know, like that experience was hard to pass up, but I still kept coming back to cooking. When you're traveling and building, you know, doing the ship interior stuff, is it standard workday? So like, you know, you put in your eight hours and then it's kind of like you go explore or so you just kind of like, I'm gonna go check out this restaurant. I'm gonna go check out this bar and just like running through places that you wanted to check out. Yeah, it was really good for that. When we were on the carnival ships, we were actually staying on the ship itself while it was out cruising. So not really getting to see all the islands that they stopped at, but we would definitely get a couple hours here and there to go see some of those islands. And then spent a lot of time out in San Francisco in their shipyard. So we got to go explore San Francisco. And, and then when I realized how close that was to French Laundry and that area, it like opened a whole new world. I was like, I would go and split and spend like a paycheck in like two or three days, just like eating everything I could come back to work and all the guys that I work with, like what I ate, and they'd be like, "You ate all that by yourself?" I'm like, "Yeah." I was also younger and a growing boy, so you know, I could stomach all that. But uh, and they're like, "What that cost?" And I was like, "Yeah, you know, I'm not gonna tell you that, like, because <laughs> I would just drop insane amount of money on food." So, but it was exciting. Uh, I never actually got into the French Laundry, the surrounding restaurants around there. Definitely made it into. So yeah, I got to see and taste a lot of the world because of that job. So it was again keeping that connection 
to my culinary roots. Roughly how old are you at this time? Like what year is this? So I did it for a short time when I was 18 and then kind of off and on. I think I did it again around like 23 or 24. And then the latest time that I did it, I guess I was in my early 30s. So I've I've gone back and forth three times or so um, with the same company. So, but it was good. I mean, like I said, I I got, we got to spend a month over in Spain working on a ship over there in this little town called uh, El Farol. And it was right on the coast. And the food over there was just, it was just amazing. The crazy thing is we would hop in a car with the other guys and we would drive an hour and a half so that they could get Big Macs at McDonald's. An hour and a half ride. And like they would hoard them, you know, they're like stuff them into, you know, bags upon bags. And then they put them in their fridges back on the ship. They would eat off of those for like the next week until we could make it out again. And I'm like, we're surrounded by fresh fish, gorgeous food. We're taking trips to McDonald's. Like it was just, it was kind of surreal to me. Like, was it because some of those guys were already like from that area and they were used to the food or were they just trying to save money? And like, that was the cheapest option. We were all Americans in Spain. So, uh, they were just used to what they wanted, you know? I mean, there's an entire nation of people that love fast food. So, and these guys were just, they were part of that and they wanted something familiar and maybe not the most adventurous, you know, eaters. So yeah, that's what we did. Yeah. We just take long car rides. When you first came the the sous chef there back on Seabrook Island, what was more challenging? Because I mean, you're working on an island. Was it the location or was it managing other cooks was the more challenging aspect of that restaurant? The sous chef term is uh, kind of funny for that one because there were really like three of us. So I think I only managed like two people and they were both qualified to do my job as well. So that really wasn't difficult. Like we just had a good time and cook, cooked, uh, you know, great food. But uh, yeah, it wasn't a very big place at all. So yeah, that, that title like was given to me, but it just meant I did all the ordering it was pretty much what it was. So <laughs> but it was fun. Uh, a lot of, again, some good people that I met there and and uh, the food was food was fine. I don't think we were doing anything too innovative or anything there. It was just good, you know, fresh seafood. So, so from there, how did you wind up at Husk? After a small break from cooking again, I, I happened to have, we actually were doing a job in Charleston on a naval ship there. And I knew I just wanted to be home again. Like I missed Charleston. I just, I wanted to be settled down again. I got tired of traveling. And then I, I saw in the paper that Sean Brock was opening this new concept and his... PR lady used to do PR for us at one of our other restaurants. So like I kind of had an in, I texted her and she's like, Hey, can you get me an interview or whatever? And so like, yeah, she passed it along and hopefully said some nice words about me and uh, kind of got me in the door. And, you know, I sat down with the, with chef Brock and yeah, he just, he kind of, he, he sold me on it. And I uh, actually pissed him off in the interview. Uh, uh, luckily he looked past it, but he was asking me uh, if I would rather work at McCready's or Husk. And at the time, uh, McCready's was doing a lot of sous vide, which was new, some molecular things. And I said something. I was like, oh, well, the Husk sounds better because I want to learn about farming and know who our farmers are and where our food's coming from. You know, and I was like, I'm not really into a lot of the molecular. And he's like, what? Using salt? You know, because that's, that's what we, you know, like we just season our food. And he like started getting mad. <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh, shit, I'm not going to get this job all of a sudden. <laughs> but I survived the interview process and uh, and went on to do some some fun stuff with him. So were those the first two like really big kind of restaurants, like really kind of put Charleston on the map from like a food perspective? Yeah, McCready's was one of them. Fig, Mike Lotta and Fig was another one. I think he was around a little before 
uh, Chef Brock got the town, or at least like made a name for himself there, I think. And uh, but yeah, Fig was there. There was a place Rujan that was really doing just good, consistent French bistro food when Chef opened Husk. I think it really just drew a lot of national attention. He, he kind of helped make that town into what it is. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, you worked there. I think BJ worked there, you know, within the his group, Aaron Silverman, Brian Baxter. I know some of them came from culinary school and it was, if it's like the CIA, they partner with certain, you know, restaurants and stuff like that. They have that kind of the program. But is it just because like that was just one of the best restaurants that being somebody coming up through the industry, it was like, oh, I can go learn they're pretty, you know, open and are willing to kind of teach you where it's not just like you're showing up, you're cooking, make sure you do it right. But they're kind of like explaining things to like, that's kind of the vibe I get. Was that kind of the case is why so many people wound up there? Yeah. Um, our CDC at the time, um, Travis Grimes, he and chef used to work together at McCready's and, uh, Travis is an amazing chef and was really good at teaching people not only how to do the food there, you know, how to, how to cook and how to balance flavors, but also to like sell that passion. Like that opening crew, I'm pretty sure we would have taken a bullet for T. Grimes. Yeah, he was, he was amazing. And he threw everything he had into that restaurant or still does to this day. But he really like, he helped that culture and that environment and grow to be what Husk was and is, you know, first and foremost, like he was our day-to-day guy in that restaurant. So, but yeah, that, uh, that experience was awesome. Yeah. We, we learned a lot. We learned a lot through people that knew and were teaching us. And then we learned a lot of trial and error. I remember we, uh, we hung a ton of bacon in our walk-in from like the first pigs that we got. And we, we must've lost 75% of it because we didn't account for moisture and, and mold and things like that. It was just, it was a learning experience, but yeah, we just, we had to eat those losses. It sucked because all that hard work going into it. But, you know, what are you going to do? Can't serve it. That was a fun time. It really was. So then at some point, you'll have to confirm if this is true or not, but you volunteered to become the butcher? Yeah, so I, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Justin Cherry, he was the opening butcher there. And he came, he moved up to be a sous chef and run run the line for, uh, for lunches a lot of time. He opened the butcher as the opening butcher. And uh, when I heard he was getting bumped up, I was not cutting it on the line anymore. Like I was just, they were doing these, they were picking up like six to 12 tables at a time. And I was not able to keep up with that. I was like, I was just not cutting it. And I could tell, you know, that sous chefs and all that were irritated uh, that I wasn't getting it. So like when I heard he was getting bumped up, I was like, Hey, I want your job. I love to do what you do. Like I love breaking down chickens, you know, fabricating fish. Like that's, that's the thing I love most about cooking. And uh, I'm just not a good line cook anymore. So if I didn't get that job, I probably would have either gotten fired or quit one or the other. So I, I went out and said that to him and he put in a good word for me and, uh, you know, it all worked out. So I was there for another three and a half years. So And that runs in your family, right? Like you, like your family's always been, had the butcher trade, right? My dad and my grandfather were uh, butchers at a place called Giant Giant Foods in, in Maryland. So yeah, it's always been in my blood, I guess. Uh, I remember going to see my dad when I was uh, younger and going back in the meat room because back then, you know, wasn't really that big of a deal. Like now, now somebody would get, you know, fired over that. But yeah, I'd go back in the meat locker with them and, you know, uh, he'd always have a hard hat on because at Giant, you have to wear a hard hat for whatever reason. And uh, just see him in his butcher coat and like, 
doing its thing. Uh, I don't know. It was always cool. I, I always really enjoyed it. So what's your favorite part? Is there a favorite like animal that, you know, you get to butcher and when we get a whole pig from, you know, a local farm and a farmer who like will tell you the name of the pig, that's cool to me. You know, that, that shows that this person loved this animal enough to give it a good life, but also hand it off to somebody in a restaurant that is going to do something to celebrate it. Cause that's how I look it up. You know, if just slaughtering things aren't, isn't necessarily great, but when you can do it on the local level is when it's really special. I have a lot of like weight tags from pigs that I've done in the past and uh, like the names are on it and all that kind of stuff. So like, it's cool. You know, when people bring you that product and you can just like see the care that went into it, you can taste it, you know, when you cook it, it's just, it's a beautiful thing. But yeah, I, I think butchering whole pigs is one of my favorite things and fish. I love fabricating fish, like a whole fish. So yeah, there was this thing I found, this was months ago during the pandemic when we were in lockdown. I think it was on Amazon Prime and it's maybe six or eight episodes or something like that. I think it might have been like Bon Appetit did it, like 20 minute episodes. And there's each one is somebody breaking down a different one's a hog. They did like a tuna on there. And it was just cool to see them like break it down and like all these different parts. This tuna one definitely like they took a whole, you know, bluefin tuna and we're like breaking it down. We use all this stuff and it's just like, whoa. It's super fun. Like we're gonna do, we're doing a lot of grouper right now, and when you can, when you can fabricate that thing, and like you feel the knife like clicking on the bones. I don't know. There, there's a feeling that kind of rushes over me because a, I know I'm not gonna lose any of that product because I'm doing it right, and then just I don't know, just being able to feel it, it. It's definitely a sense of touch that just brings me a lot of joy. I don't know. It's it's fun. But it, that's like my happy place. Back in the day, you know, there used to be butchers kind of almost like it seems like around kind of every corner, at least every town like had a butcher. But now it's it's you really have to kind of I feel like search depending on what city you're in. Like Columbus, we have like a couple. Is there a reason for that? Is it just, you know, mass quantities, grocery stores and all that stuff? The, the world's too big and we can't keep up. We cannot compete with a grocery store. Like you can't expect a butcher shop to do BOGOs. Or buy two, get three free, you know, like whatever it is. Like you can't expect the butcher to do that. And also, if you do have a butcher shop, more than likely you're getting meat from a local farmer, you know, and again, like that price goes up. So they work probably takes quite a few years of uh, questioning. Is this the right thing to do? Or like, are we going to make it? But when you get a community that has tasted it and believes in it and knows you and made that connection then it is sustainable. They'll begin to taste the difference between, let's say, you know, a strip steak from there versus a strip steak from the grocery store. They're not the same. They're just not the same. You know, you can look at them and visually tell that it's not the same. It's sad, but also the world's just, it's just too big. It's just too big. You know, there's too many people in it. It's just, and there's not enough open-minded people realizing that this is, these are people's lives and things like that. So it's tough. I mean, grocery stores are necessary. I'm not going to dog them the entire time. You know, there is a, uh, <laughs> there is a lot of waste that goes on there. I worked at one in Charleston before I moved here. The amount of waste I saw broke my spirits. Like I kind of thought that was going to be my end game. You know, I thought I was done with kitchens and, you know, saw myself. I mean, my dad did it for 35 years. Like if he can do it, I can do it. I don't know if we had different, I think we have different appreciations of food. Yeah. There's a lot of waste that goes on in grocery stores. It's a, uh, it's frightening. I mean, I remember during uh, kind of the economic collapse, like 08, 09 or whatever, I was working at a, 
auto parts manufacturer and like, you know, they laid off a bunch of people and stuff. So I snagged a job at like our local Walmart for a little while until kind of things pick back up. And just the amount of stuff you would see just the bakery department just come into the back to throw just whole cakes and stuff. And we always wondered, you know, why couldn't they just donate that to a food bank or a homeless? Like, it's still good, you know. I guess some states it's a legal issue where it's like the corporation basically doesn't want to get sued for like if somebody got food poisoning out of it. And that's why like they don't donate it. We were able to donate a lot of things from the meat department. We would just like, so before it would go out of date, we would toss it in the freezer so that it would it would hold and preserve it. And then that would get taken off to local food banks. But it had to be a certain product. It had to be packaged a certain way. Like, you know, there were always a lot of rules that went into it. So it's not like they don't try. But yeah, I mean, we're Sioux First Nation. So give someone the opportunity to point the finger at you. So yeah, I mean, I, I get that they have to cover their butts, but uh, it's, it is it is hurtful. I mean, it's it's pain. It's painful to watch. So... I won't go too into detail with this, but during the pandemic, we were like, we, we weren't able, I mean, everyone knows this, like everyone shops. We were unable to keep things on the shelf because everyone was just coming in and like hoarding food. Like it was never going to be available again. So there were a lot of times that we had empty shelves. And then at some point we started to get this surplus because they started to like ramp up, you know, production. I threw away 2,300 pounds of chicken one day. And it just like case upon case upon case because they just started to overorder and then people stopped buying as much. It was, it was like one of my last days and it, it definitely broke me. Like I, I saw this and I was just like, I can't believe like, like you can make somebody else do this. Like, cause I just can't do it. It, it, it sucked. Like that really messed me up for a couple of days. And I just, I was glad I was done just to think about the amount of people that need food, can't get it. And here I am having to just shovel fucking, yeah, so much wasted food. It's crazy. Because I'm not perfect by any means. Don't get me wrong. Like, I, I lose food in my refrigerator too, but it's tough. It's interesting because you look at like stuff that happened and good things that happened out of, they're few and far between during the pandemic, but like some cities started doing like community fridges where people could go and like if this was going to expire in a couple of days and you knew you weren't going to use it, you could put it in the fridge and that way somebody could actually use it, stuff like that. But even I think it's, I think it was Michael Solomonov, he had out in Philly, they have federal donuts and one of the things they do is chicken. So they were basically trying to figure out a way that they could be more sustainable and use other parts of the chicken that they didn't need for whatever they were doing at deep frying chicken and stuff. And they started like this kind of soup kitchen concept and they were making like soups and stuff. And they did it for a few years, but then they just eventually had to shut it down because it just, it wouldn't even like break even. What do you do? You know, you're trying to be sustainable and responsible and help all these other people, but eventually it just gets to a point where it's like, it's going to drag down all the other things that are attached to it if we don't let it go because it just doesn't turn on break even, you know, not even trying to turn like a profit. It's definitely like a, a thing that you can think about and get into just kind of like a weird headspace of like trying to like, how, how do you make it better? How do you change it? It can take you down a rabbit hole if you're not careful and you won't necessarily end up in a happy place with it either because the answers like nobody wants to deal with what we have to do to make something like that work. Because you're trying to, well, I mean, start about, think about it. Like you're trying to pay somebody a fair wage to create this product, which you're trying to sell for inexpensive. So like the two don't match up. It just, it doesn't work. So it's not an easy world to live in, you know, like it's fun cooking, but what you have to focus on running a business and start looking at numbers, like it can take the fun out of it. You're doing the butcher position at Husk for a while. 
obviously you love it. How did, you know, becoming the CDC at Monero, how did that all kind of happen? Uh, chef came to me one day and was like, hey, like, I want to talk to you. And I was like, God, can you not say it like that? Like, <laughs> I'm kind of freaking out here. Like, and he's like, so I fucking love tacos. And I hate that I come to the town that I live in. Because at this time he was back and forth uh, from Nashville. And he's like, and I just, I can't get a good taco. He's like, I can't taste the corn at this. I mean, you figure husk was built around corn for the most part. I mean, it's in the name. And he's like, you want to do tacos? Like, do you want to, you want to make some badass tacos? And I was like, yeah, uh, you know, let me, I didn't really like think ever about making tacos. I obviously, I'm obviously not Mexican or Latino or I'm blue eyed, blonde hair. Like, I don't know much about it, but I'm into it. You know, someone like that comes and offers you a position of, in a restaurant like that. You, you'd be dumb to say no. So, so jumped into it and just, uh, you know, started reading books and, looking at things online and adapting recipes and like trying to figure things, these things out. Cause again, I didn't have a grandmother to teach me this cuisine. So I knew I was going to have to to do some research. So, uh, yeah, I started, I actually started on Cinco de Mayo was my first day, which is kind of funny. And it was me in what used to be their old dry storage room at McCready's and like their fermenting room that they had. And it was myself, a computer, a ton of cookbooks, some heirloom beans and heirloom corn, two induction burners and a grinder and a tortilla press. That was it. Like, and I was just in there trying to figure out how to make tortillas from scratch. I had no idea about the nixalimization process, like how it worked, all that kind of stuff. So I was just really teaching myself and learning from books. Uh, it was fun because when we figured it out, I realized that the corn tortillas that we eat on a daily basis taste nothing like what we were about to do. There's a company called Macienda out of California, and they uh, they supply corn hominy that's sourced from Mexico. We started like our two companies started up at the same time, so it was just kind of match made in heaven. So yeah, we got all of our corn from them, and uh, they bought a thousand pound grinder. It was huge. Um, the stones alone are like a foot across. Yeah, we started grinding our own corn and making tacos. Super exciting. Uh, I think we did a pretty good job. You know, people love them. It was fun. It was a, it was it was a blast. Like I still miss that smell. There's a smell when you're nixonalizing the corn. Some people will say it kind of smells soapy. To me, I don't know. It, it's just it's like a perfume to me. Like it's something that I love. So I mean, it tastes amazing. If you ever get yourself a chance to have a true corn tortilla, like jump at it. When Brock announced he was. Moving to Nashville full time. Was that a surprise to, you know, everybody within the restaurant group or did everybody kind of see it coming and go, oh, yeah, we kind of knew that was going to happen. I guess it's kind of time to start looking at like maybe what else I want to do or when the patriarch of a restaurant group like that decides like that they're going to go do something else. How does that affect everybody else? I mean, I wasn't shocked. I can't necessarily speak for anyone else, but uh, he definitely seemed to be spending more time in Nashville at the other husk. You know, for whatever, I, I I can only assume that it's because, I mean, he trusts Travis Grimes to run the one in Charleston and he does a great job at it. So like maybe he felt comfortable to, that that was in good hands and to go somewhere else. So I'm not quite sure, you know, why. Maybe I think he probably just loves, I mean, the guy loves music. So Nashville is a good spot for that. And no, I don't think a whole lot of people were necessarily jumping ship or freaking out too much. You know, I saw it as an opportunity to just, you know, keep doing the great food and carry on with Monero and just thankful that we had the opportunity with him that, that we did. So, uh, 
but yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't, I like the guy. I think he's awesome. He's, he's fun. He's fun to be around. But no, I mean, I, I just saw it as an opportunity to make Monero my own at that point, even though no one, you know, knows or knew who I was. You know, I obviously didn't have the name that that chef did. It's not going to stop me from giving it a go. Yeah, you're able to put your own kind of stamp or own twist on some stuff that maybe you, know, you weren't before, or at least kind of use the opportunity to do that stuff. How did you wind up in Columbus? Working at the grocery store at that time because I was just I was kind of burned out from the restaurant industry itself. I just needed a break. Um, my mental was not in a good mental headspace. I couldn't ignore it anymore. So, so that's why I jumped out of that. I don't know. Just being at the grocery store, I realized that this was not the end game that I thought it was going to be. It was just way too corporate. I felt like I would have had to been there for another six years before I even got the opportunity to begin the process to move up. And then did I really want to put up with all that corporate BS? Because that's exactly what it is. Like you got, it's like office space. You have like five different bosses telling you, you know, asking you about your TPS report. So like I couldn't do that. And then BJ said that he was, uh, he was doing a pop up. And I was like, well, I'll go give a hand for that. Like, I miss traveling. I haven't traveled in a moment. Came up here in February, like right before shit hit the fan with the pandemic. I think I got home like the next week and everything was beginning to go on lockdown. Yeah, I came up here, did the did the pop-up, met Justin. We did some good food and uh, people seemed to really respond to it. That was exciting. And then when he said he was moving forward, you know, asked me to to be a part of the team. I mean, when somebody that you respect and, you know, and I've worked with for a while uh, asks you, to, to do something like that, like you kind of have to jump at the opportunity. So, and I was done with Charleston. Charleston was uh, good for me. I spent 20 years there. Kind of saw a lot of things happening around the area that I wasn't in love with. It was getting tougher and tougher to to live there, you know, on, on a cook's wage. Charleston was basically pricing out the thing that people love about Charleston. So it's built around hospitality, but they make it so hard for hospitality workers to live there. And not live like in a group of four in, you know, a house somewhere. So it's a, or like 90 minutes away. Yeah, exactly. Or yeah, commute that long and then have to, it's again, that's a whole other soapbox, you know, but you got to work an hour and a half to be able to make money to pay for parking, you know, and like the city just wasn't moving in a direction that was helpful to the hospitality industry. And I was, I was just ready to, to be done with it. So, so yeah, came to Columbus. So. Did you and BJ ever work in the same kitchen before that, or was it just kind of same restaurant group? We worked at Huss together. He and Justin Cherry, who was the opening butcher, they um they actually worked in the in the walk-in doing all that, like when we first opened. And then BJ came inside, started working the line. And then yeah, luckily I got chosen over him to do the butchering job. We worked together for I think another year and a half at that point before he moved on. And and then so I'm from Maryland. So every time I would go back to Maryland, I'd always go into DC and eat because there's nothing. There's no good restaurants down in where I'm from. Flying into DC, might as well stay there. So yeah, I would always hit him up and uh, either go to Roses or we'd go out and eat somewhere else. Yeah, I always said, hey, when we were around each other. So Moving itself presents different challenges. Then throw in moving during a pandemic. Was there anything extra, you know, having moved around so much that like when you're doing it in the middle of a pandemic, you're like, I can't believe like this is this hard to do. It was really just probably the uh, the thought of opening a restaurant during a pandemic. You know, just seeing when it started, I was in Charleston. So like seeing all of my friends, like either getting laid off or getting hours cut and, you know, all of a sudden, what's our future? Yeah, moving to somewhere to open a place that you're not sure is really going to make it. That was probably the most frightening thing. Like 
what happens if you know money runs out and we're still not open like at what point there was no fallback that was probably the toughest and scariest thing uh yeah, I mean, like we came up, found an apartment. Yeah, about a month later, I think we were here. Was this the first ever actual like restaurant opening that you were part of, scratch to actual like completion? This would be my second because when I opened Monero, I was definitely like, like I said, it was me in a room by myself for three months, cooking and developing the menu, and you know, and then hiring. So this this time it was a little easier, uh, even though it was more difficult because of what was going on in the world. Yeah. Also, Justin and, and BJ had done a lot of work and Seth had done a lot of work before uh, we actually got here. So we just kind of came in and picked up where they had left off and took us to another level of preparedness. I, I actually enjoy opening restaurants, which is kind of sick. It's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, there's so much that goes into it. There's so many uncertainties, like, but it is fun because you know you're in control of it. That's about the only time that you're in control of something. Once you open the doors... Now you're at the guests that can call, so to speak. So, you know, like they're the variable that you can't predict anymore. So, yeah, you're reacting more than like planning ahead kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. You can plan, but somebody else is going to screw that up. So a little over maybe what a year, year and a half being in Columbus. What are your thoughts so far on Columbus? Any standout highlights, anything that you wish the city had, but, but doesn't have, you know, that you're expecting or anything like that? I love being able to drive 20 minutes or as far as an hour to go hiking. The amount of like green spaces around this place is it's remarkable. I, I thoroughly enjoy it. The the, uh, the bike paths and all that kind of stuff, how easy it is to get around the city. I'm just in love with it. Uh, things I wish we had. I wish we had more fish in town. You know, I mean, I, I'd realize, I know where we're at. Like, <laughs> I know it sounds kind of funny, but I don't know. I just... I miss that. I miss the availability of it, uh, the frequency that I can get it. I mean, again, we were on the coast, so it, it would be silly if we didn't have that. But uh, I kind of took it for granted how easy it was to get a variety of fish at any time. The guys at Coastal Local Seafood uh, in the North Market, they do, a, they do a great job of bringing stuff in. So I like going in there and seeing their fish counter. So. Yeah, we were just in there the other day and they it feels like they're even like a little bit bigger now. I don't know if they took over because there's I forget what in next to them. I think it's like West African cuisine. And it feels like maybe they didn't need that whole space that used to be pistachio vera. So I, I think they even might have a little bit more room at the seafood counter now than they did before. I think they just got better equipment for their needs is what it appears to be. So like things are just more streamlined. Uh, and also I think it's lower so you can actually see them more so now. You're not just seeing like head and shoulders from behind the counters. When you guys did the a week in the South menu, you know, that was you and BJ based off, you know, you guys working in Charleston for so long and being around Southern cuisine and stuff. When you're putting that together, did you guys already kind of know exactly what dishes you wanted on there? Or was it, did you come up with 12, 13 different dishes and had to figure out which ones you guys didn't want on there? Like, did anything get cut before the final menu? Or was it just, yeah, we know exactly what eight we want to do and this is that? I think we knew what we wanted to do. I think we we were trying to not just recreate Husk in Columbus, which is tough because we you know, I, we were there for a long time, so we saw a lot of food. So it was, it was almost impossible not to. We cut a few things. We pivoted from a few things, uh, dessert-wise and whatnot. The fact that we only did two desserts, you know, we could have done six desserts. That would have been fantastic on there. Yeah, so we, we definitely had to trim a few things back. We flip-flopped on a few things, and then 
we tried to change a few things. Uh, you know, experience. I had one in my head that I've been wanting to do for a long time, and that was that uh, that catfish unagi, which actually made it to the menu, which was fantastic um, for a while. But it's it's just fun, you know. It's a different play on it, and I love catfish. Like that's something also that I miss about you know not being in the South is uh you know just fried catfish is delicious. So you know I know we're probably not the first people to ever do that. You know, nothing's new. It was new for for Columbus, so that was good. That was a fun menu though, because uh, it in a sense that it was easy for us just because again, like we lived it for so long, you know, it's taste memories. So it was fun to bring those back for us. It's been said that you make possibly the best tacos that you can find in the city. Any chance that tacos eventually make its way onto the menu at Chapman? Uh, BJ's been trying for a while. I do all right with tacos. Uh, they're not the best. They're not, uh, you know, I'm, again, I'm Irish, German, blonde hair, blue eyed kid, you know, so like, they're, they're good for what I can do, though. Uh, I, I appreciate that. Uh, I would love to. Uh, BJ's been trying to, and I've been, I have stipulations on it. Because again, like, I'm not going to just put some bunk ass tortilla on a plate. Like, I know what good tortillas are, I know what they take. And unless it's that, I'm not personally willing to do it. It's not a knockout drag out site, but he, he kind of knows my answer now at this point. We try to get some, um, I mean, we, we have some Mexican influences on there with uh, our duck dish and the mole. That's on there right now. I like mole. It's a it's definitely a labor intensive process. The flavor is definitely worth it. So yeah, there's a couple things on there that uh that have our influences from uh, Monero on there. So now you also work with Pam, who wife girlfriend girlfriend. What is that like? You know, she runs the front of the house operations. Is it ever just kind of weird? Like you just kind of take a step back and you're like, oh yeah, I see this person all the time. Or is it just kind of like, yeah, this is awesome. I see this person like all the time. It's definitely, uh, oh, I see this person all the time. And it's, I see this person all the time. I mean, I'm, I'm just kidding. No, it's fun. We work really well together. We definitely don't agree with each other all the time. So it's not like we're just, uh, you know, it's not just the two of us like teaming up or anything like that. Like I do things that piss her off and vice versa. And uh, we definitely don't see eye to eye all the time, but it is, uh, it is fun. Like, well, a lot of times I think cooks and chefs like refer to the kitchen as their home. So then to see my loved one, at home all the time it's nice uh but yeah i mean there's there's good times and bad times we we do a really good job of uh keeping things separate and keep things professional so it's good um it's not for everyone i think we work well together yeah no i think if me and my wife worked in the same space like we did during covid (laughs) i don't think we could do it like every day we'd probably kill each other it's tough sometimes i mean she's good at what she does like she's she calls me out on, you know, things that I miss all the time and like for standards and things like that. Like she has an eye for that. So it's, uh, it's, it's helpful as long as, you know, if I can put my ego aside and realize that it's, you know, she's doing what's best for the guests and we work well. So you just can't let egos get in the way. Which do you like better so far? Crew games or Clipper games? Crew games. We did both this weekend. We did crew games on... Saturday night. And then yesterday we went to a Clippers game and uh, the atmosphere at that new stadium is just awesome. It's just awesome. Like it's, I've never been to, I haven't been to a ton of uh, professional soccer games, but um, these are awesome. Like I really do love it. Even just walking up to the stadium, like I can just, I just feel myself getting excited and like caught up in it and like the fans that are rocking flags and you know, all the gear, like you can just feel the energy in the air. So did you ever go to the old stadium before they moved? I did not. No, I've just driven past it, but now I hadn't experienced that yet. So this is all I know. 
the, the old stadium's fine. Like, I don't know. The old stadium. I'm sure it had its character. It was kind of a weird layout. I mean, that was like the first soccer specific stadium they built back in like 95, 96, you know, when it all started. So, yeah, it's weird when you're like trying to, you know, go to one of the food vendors and it's like everything's like triangular under there because you have like the bleachers going over your head and then there's like a food stand. So it was, it was always kind of weird. But yeah, the new stadium just, it seems really awesome. And it's amazing. We uh, sacked up and got some season tickets. I wasn't planning to. They had this day where it was just come select your seat. And I really just wanted to go in and check out the stadium like before anyone else was in there, you know, like while I was still really new. And we got in there and I was just like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. And I'm like looking around, like we sat in a couple seats and then she like looked at me and she was like, I think we're going to buy seats today. (laughs) She's like, I know this was your, I was like, no, that was not my intention, but I'm glad you're feeling the way I'm feeling. So we, uh, yeah, we ended up buying, it was a partial season. uh, You know, there were only 13 games left, so. It was doable financially, and uh, yeah, I'm glad we did. So I've been to three; she's been to two. We, you know, a couple of our people from work uh, have uh, benefited from it and all that kind of stuff, and picked, gone to a game or two. Yeah, it's fun. I love it though. I, I think it's a blast. What's next for you professionally as a chef? Like, do you ever consider one day down the road opening a restaurant of your own, or are you just one day maybe open a butcher shop? So we've been talking about a butcher shop for oh since Husk multiple friends and I, uh, pretty much like anyone who took over as the butcher after me, uh, we've always had like the discussion of we should do this, you know, like we would crush this, but it's kind of like you talked about earlier and, uh, and what you hit on where it's just, it works. There's a lot of years where it's going to be tough. I don't know if that's it for me. Maybe I'll go work at a butcher shop, you know, just be the old man behind the counter. Like I'm totally fine with that. So yeah, I don't know. Uh, I know I can't be in a kitchen forever. Age will catch up to me at some point. So uh, yeah, we're, I think we're hopefully moves here at Chapman's will uh, will will continue growing, and you know I can start to phase my way out of theirs on a daily daily basis and just get into another form of it. Who knows? I mean, I'm I'm enjoying it again, being in being in the kitchen. So I'm just trying to trying to do the, you know the best that we can that we can do right now. So my retirement plan is to uh, make grilled cheese sandwiches at a uh, golf course. That's how I want to retire. So I just want to make bomb ass grilled cheese sandwiches at the turn. So, and hopefully get some free golf out of it. A few more questions for you. A handful of questions. We ask these to everybody. So everybody can get kind of a compare and contrast. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your culinary career thus far? Looking back on it. Uh, my dad, mainly from a work ethic aspect. Uh, that man busted his ass every day of his life and still does to this day. Uh, he used to take vacations from the butchering job to to do landscaping. So he was constantly working. His work ethic is uh, something that I I think is rubbed off on both me and my sister. I think because that's what ninety percent of uh, of working in a kitchen is is work ethic. You know, showing up every day and trying to do you know everything you can. So what's the one item in the kitchen that you can't live without? Can't be a knife though. Dish machine. Having to hand wash dishes would break you it would yeah it stinks when it goes down like you feel it around the restaurant so yeah i'd, I'd say a dish machine what's the one thing in a restaurant that you wouldn't fix yourself like this thing breaks and you're like i don't care what it costs for somebody to come fix it i'm not touching it i'm not doing it i hate that i'm gonna say the dish machine but uh, it's just like that technical i'm not good at uh, mechanical things necessarily but yeah it's uh, anything electric i don't i respect electricity way too much 
what's a restaurant you'd recommend that isn't Chapman's? So, you know, somebody gets stuck overnight at the airport, you know, just in the city, in the city of Columbus. Um, this is a tough one because I, I haven't like fully been able to experience Columbus yet. I know we've been here for a year, but it's been a weird year. I'm digging the burger at H&M right now. Uh, they do a solid, solid job. So if you're in town for a night and you're, you're lay, you have a layover, I'd head over to that bar and, and get that burger. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant that you want to go to, haven't been. I'm going to go to Iceland. I want to go somewhere where I can like look up at the night sky and just see everything. It's gorgeous there from, you know, just the pictures that I've seen. So I'd, I think Iceland, ah, bucket list. I really can't wait until Audrey opens in Nashville, Chef Brock's new place. I want to see what he's doing now. Yeah, it's a crazy concept. I mean, building it from scratch, there's like going to be two restaurants in there, I think, at least. I think one's kind of like a more a la carte, kind of casual, and then I think he's going to do like a tasty menu thing. He's got a solid crew there, and uh, I know all those, the guys that I do know, like, I know they're awesome chefs, so I really can't wait to see the next version of what he's doing, because I know he's super into Asian food as well, and we just never really got to, you know, tap into that at Husk, so... Yeah, I'm interested to see if he brings that passion to that place. So craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? Uh, I mean, I've experienced the plates being pushed back out of the window at us. Full on plated plates that weren't quote unquote right. Just being pushed out of a window, falling onto other plates that we're preparing and just like putting the entire line at a standstill. (laughs) Like it makes zero sense. But yeah, seeing that, like, that's a tough one. <laughs> that, that, that's enough to make you just want to walk out. Like, we don't, we suck it up and drink about it later. Food or drink, guilty pleasure. Is there anything that you just got to try and stay away from, whether it's, you know, going down grocery store aisles or sweet tooth or anything like that? Yeah, if I see a croissant, I'm getting it. It's bad because I know exactly what's in it. I know that I'm not going to feel good an hour later. But I can't, I can't stop. Like, I don't, I don't go a certain way to Chapman's on a daily basis because pistachio bear is there. It's like the old cartoons where like the the smell of something picks you up by the nose and like makes you float over to it. That's what croissants are to me. And then they make killer croissants. Also, uh, Dan the Baker. Dan the Baker makes bitchin' fucking croissants. Favorite dish, thing you've ever cooked, created, kind of something that you look back on throughout your career and you can kind of point to as like that moment that kind of all came together and you realize, yeah, I could definitely do this professionally as a career. Um, I did a sweetbread, veal sweetbreads back in the day with a uh, parsnip puree, which I still love making until this day. And a, um, with lemon and capers and parsley and it was a garlic. Yeah, it was just this gorgeous, like velvety, like vibrant flavor on a plate. Like the parsnip was... It, it was just the softest, most supple thing that you've ever eaten. And then like the crispiness of the, the seared sweetbreads. And then just like, again, all those like vibrant vinegar, lemony flavors from the sauce. Uh, that's That one lives in my head. And I think about it a lot. That would be one I would love to do again. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is. If you are, is there a favorite moment, scene, episode that stands out to you about him or you aren't? Was there another kind of culinary personality, whether it was like Emerald or Julia Child, something like that, that when you were coming up kind of stood out to you and you kind of gravitated towards? So I love Anthony Bourdain. I hate that the multiple times that he was in Charleston with uh, with Chef, I never got the chance to, to meet him. 
I missed out on a couple of those opportunities, unfortunately. Um, but definitely a big influence on, you know, traveling and eating and, and just lifestyles from that guy. You know, I grew up on PBS entertainment, culinary, you know, cooking shows and all that, like the originals. Uh, so Yan Can Cook was huge for me because uh, if Yan Can Cook, so can you. Uh, that was his big line at the end. And um, also Jacques Pepin. Jacques Pepin was brilliant with or without Julia Child, but the two of them together were great. I love that guy's list. The way he would just like, just listening to him talk and just like, it just brings a smile on my face and like the passion that he, that he had about food. So yeah, I was, uh, I was big on those PBS shows and great chefs, great cities. That's uh, I think it was on the discovery channel or travel channel, something like that. I always just wanted to be, there was always one chef, one cook that would just like walk back and forth in the background. And like, I always said that if I could just be that guy, I made it. And something new we're going to do here. What's one question that you want to ask the next guest on the podcast? I can't tell you who the guest is going to be. So it could be a chef. Yeah, it'll be somebody within the industry. What's one question you want to leave behind? How do you shut your mind off? If it's a chef, it'll make sense. Um, because I know we constantly are thinking about food or what's next. And, you know, it's always, I feel like we're just always thinking. And I, I would just love to know how people are able to like, shut their minds off what they do to shut their minds off yeah maybe kind of a weird one but no i think that applies to pretty much anybody regardless of what they're doing too so where can people find you social media website reservations plug all that stuff i'm on instagram wesley grubbs i post here and there you know i'm not not too big on it but uh i think i have a facebook that i couldn't tell you last time i looked at that so uh you can find me at chapman's you can find me at the golf course and if you see a, a red el camino driving around town that's me Say hey. And you guys are open Tuesday through Saturday? Yep. Tuesday through Saturday. Yeah. Sunday, Mondays are closed, which I think is brilliant. I hope it stays that way for a long, long time. I think those are great days for everyone to have off. And you got the dining room, bar areas, first come, first serve. PDR is open. Yeah. We got a patio for whatever, two more months, maybe. until it starts getting uh, colder and darker or and later. Should be able to use it probably into most of October. October's pretty warm here. And then November, and then just it'll drop off a cliff. And like, it'll be, oh, it's like 60 degrees. It's not bad. And then all of a sudden, it's like 30. So it's somewhere like late October. Like, all of a sudden, it just falls off a cliff. And you're like, wait, what happened? It's winter now. Yeah, we're we're getting ready to do a couple menu changes over at Chapman. So if, if you've been in recently, just know that it'll be new again in probably two, three weeks. And then we've got a guest chef dinner coming up uh, next Tuesday. That should be fun. We're going to be there, so we'll see you there for that. But love having you guys in Columbus. It's definitely helped change the restaurant scene for the better since you guys have opened. So it's always awesome to come in, and it's always great time, great experience with everything that you guys are doing there. So it's always a lot of fun. Couldn't recommend it enough to anybody in Columbus who hasn't been or if you've been going back or somehow get stuck in Columbus or traveling through or whatever. So, but yeah, it's always a good time, and, and we'll be seeing you soon. Cool. Yeah, we appreciate that. Uh, yeah, we want to become people's neighborhood spot, you know. German Village is kind of like this weird area, and it's definitely starting to get more restaurants and stuff too, aside from the Staples, your Schmidt's Sausage House and everything that was always there. So it's always nice to new restaurants that are doing new things and changing over the menu, you know, fairly frequently too, like you guys are. It's always a good time. So, you know, we love it. It's one of our favorite spots. Can't recommend you guys enough. Yeah, we, we, we definitely appreciate that. But that's it for the podcast. So stay in touch. We'll see you soon. Thanks for having me. 
Big thanks again to Chef Wesley Grubbs for taking some time out of one of his off days coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. It's always cool to catch up with different chefs. And, you know, I know they only get so much time off. Usually Sunday, Mondays are kind of the best times for them. So anytime they're able to kind of make a schedule accommodation work too as well, it, it really helps us out. So always thankful for anyone that's able to do that and come on the podcast and everything. It's a lot of fun to talk to all these guys and get to know kind of the Chapman's team. So hopefully you guys have been listening along too as well. If you haven't, check out the BJ Lieberman episode. One of the first ones that we did, I think it was like the fourth one or so. Also check out the Matt Larkin episode where we talked mostly about Vietnam on that episode just because he lived there and and he was inspiration for the Vietnam menu that they did. So just like Wesley was inspiration for the Southern menu that they did too as well from his time cooking down there and everything. So check them out on Instagram at Eat Chapman's, also at Wesley Grubbs. Make sure to check us out on Instagram too as well at Spoon Mob if you're not already. Give us a follow. Make sure to subscribe, follow to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. We're on all the major platforms, your Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher are kind of the big five. And then we're on all the little minor ones too as well that mainly people with Android software use. But unless for some reason somebody has a specific attachment to one of their podcast players, you can pretty much find us on there as well. Uh, If for some reason you can't, feel free to shoot us an email, send in a little comment through the comment box on the website, and uh, we'll take a look at it, see if we can get on that platform if we're not already on there already. Appreciate everybody listening. Make sure to check out past episodes. Chefs and guests come out every Thursday. Also check out Parts Now Known, rewatching Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown series. So we're in the middle of season six there. Been a lot of fun doing these, connecting with people, and we're just going to keep it rolling. So hope everybody is enjoying these so far. Uh, Feedback's been pretty good that we've gotten from people. So just going to keep doing them, have a lot of fun doing them, and hopefully you guys enjoy them too as well. But help spread the word, visit the website, all that good stuff. Talk to you guys next week.